I'm Andy Murphy, and this is the Toasted Sister Podcast. Before I get started, I want to let you know about the Indigenous Comic Con. It's a three-day event from November 10 to 12 at the Isleta Casino and Resort here in Albuquerque. There's going to be native comic book creators there. Chief from Wonder Woman will be there. Robots, video games, and all kinds of native nerdy things. There's also panels about things like native pop culture, game design, cultural appropriation, natives in horror, and podcasts. And guess what? I'll be on the Podcasting 101 panel on Friday the 10th. So check out indigenouscomiccon.com and get your Indigenerd on. is a special episode I have for you and I hope you enjoy it because I did. Last weekend I went to Taos in northern New Mexico for an indigenous food experience put on by the Red Willow Farm at the Taos Pueblo. You're going to hear from a few chefs, some farmers, two tribal leaders, and a pastry chef. Let's get started at the community dinner at the Pueblo. I talked with Sean Duran. She's a tribal program administrator for the Pueblo. I actually um, helped institute the Red Willow Center um, back in 2002. So the infrastructure that was built there, everything that would support that, the whole idea was to engender the younger generations the importance of agriculture by utilizing old technology, I mean old beliefs with new technology. So, I mean, that is still something that's yet to come in the community and the vital importance of having agriculture it's not the old school way of thinking of it where you have to get up at 4 a.m in the morning to go irrigate a field how can we better bring those kind of healthy choices to our tables that's what matters the food is all a part of i mean holistically when you look at a healthy community it's an integral part of everything that we do um, in our communities as native people and there's been a falling away um obviously with determinants of health and things like that that have happened and now we need to regain that back in our community. After the event and dinner, I met with Curtis Sandoval. He's the war chief for the Pueblo. We're in charge of natural resources. That means we take care of uh, 127,000 acres with a 12-man staff. So um, that's how we operate here. We just take care of all the animals and plants, wildlife, uh, agriculture, what we need to be done here. And also we have a government governor that's in charge of all the administrative part of the, which is in charge of the village inside. Uh, so he take care of all the, I guess, call it headaches of um, being an administrator. So what did, what did you think about this um, this event? I know it's the first time. Yeah, well, we, um, I'm, I'm just, um, very glad to do and they put it up because we, we do need to um, bring our people together, especially education that we trying to push this time because um, as you know the language is very important to our culture and as you know all over the Indian nations they're losing their languages a lot of places so we like to still keep ours and keep going through education and do the head start and with the head start and also through the day school and all on through the high school that we have MOAs and, uh, with the state of state schools that we go through to teach our language to the students that are there and I did especially the chefs that are here. I'm glad they came and um, for them doing a good job of putting the thing together. And it's an awesome event, and I wish more people would attend. 
those kind of events. Uh, what did you think about the food on the plate? Was that um, something you typically eat or was it something different? Oh, that's what typically what we eat. Uh, we also take care of the bison. We have a herd of 136 buffalo that we take care of. So we do have a certain turn days in uh, like coming this winter in November, we'll be killing a couple of them for the community for the winter part to get ready for winter and stuff. Like that. We do have that and then the vegetables, everything was real good and really making. That's how what we used to eat a long time ago before all this uh, fast food came into play. Uh, when when you guys um, are putting more importance on uh, the food, how do you think that would affect the community in in the long run? It's important because, um, as you know, that uh, food is nowadays you don't know what's in it, uh, especially now, you know, making it taste better, which is not right. You know, it's just that uh, I think better to install and educate people on how to raise their own food, like vegetables and corns and squashes and. You know, used to make their own, which is with a couple of years now, it's been that the people have been doing their own garden, which is great, getting their own vegetables and stuff that we need for eat, for regular and also for traditional purposes. I went with my sister to this community event, and one thing we really enjoyed about it was the feeling of home. Even though we're not Pueblo or even Taos Pueblo, we felt at home and we felt comfortable because everyone was so nice and the whole place well, at least the gym we were in, had a very welcoming and cozy feel. Uh, so the next day, the indigenous food experience started with a public tasting. A handful of vendors set up shop outside the Farmhouse Cafe, which has a breathtaking view of the mountains and was surrounded by trees that had already turned yellow from the cold weather. And I first met with a man whose booth was lined with a whole bunch of pastries and breads. My name's Geronimo Romero, and I'm a the, the published pastry chef, I guess. <laughs> and um, can you tell me what you have here on the table? Today I have, you have traditional oven bread that's made in a beehive oven. We call them orno. And in our language it's called pokutu. And then I have um, pumpkin cookies, um, pumpkin turnovers, and pumpkin bread. That was all made from our um, na native pumpkins that we have, which are called the Hubbard. And it's like a green pumpkin that you have that I have right here. You're at you're at the markets in the morning. Well, we we have one big one that we do on Saturday, and I bake two days, Friday and Saturday mornings, and I bake all day on Friday, and then Saturday morning get up early at by four o'clock and get ready and do the second batch of bread, and get it done by eight o'clock to bring it to the market. So I'm, I do two markets. One is the Red Willow Market, which is at the Pueblo, and the other one is the Town Town Market. And that the Town Market, you have to be chosen to to sell there. It's just that you can't just go and sell. So I got a great opportunity to get selected to go sell there. So we've been selling there over 20 years, and our bread is the best seller over there. We go there and run out by 10:30. And then the peop more people come, and they ask, where's the bread? Now, what can I say? You know, all these people come. And I do anywhere between 40 to 60 loaves. At the peak, peak time of the season, I do about 60 loaves. And pies, cookies, and whatever I can think of I'm making, that, um, that I have a long list of um, recipes up here.
in my head. <laughs> so. And uh, you learned these from your mom, is that right? Um, by trade, I'm a chef. So I went to school to become a chef. And I went into Albuquerque, but um, the school just lets me basically lets you know about what to expect. And then it, it was more like on-the-job training that I got. So um, I lived in Albuquerque for a long time and was a pastry chef at the Hyatt Regency. That was my last job. And then I came home to take care of my parents. And my mom taught me all the traditional ways of baking in a beehive oven. Because um, we used to help her when she was baking, and that's all we did. But um, um, now I do everything that, that she used to do. So I, I have five sisters, but I lost one. So out of all of them, I'm the only one that knows all my mom's recipes. So, and they have to come to me to get bread. <laughs> uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, uh, the kind of oven it is? It's a tr traditional oven, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a beehive-shaped oven that's made of mud, adobes and mud. And um, what, what we do is we build a fire inside and pretty much like two armloads of cedar wood. We use only cedar wood because it, the, the aroma is very, it smells good, and um, the flavor is there with, for the for the food, for the bread, whatever we cook with, and um, um, we use them a lot. Whenever we have ceremonies, we use them for that. You know, different types of baking. You can cook meat in there, and whatever you want. It's it's an all-purpose oven, and they're outside, outside your house. So um, after you build a fire, you remove the coals, and then you put the bread into a clean, clean oven. And it's the retained heat that cooks the, the bread or whatever you want, you're cooking. So, um, Can you tell me what that process was like to get that sort of oven and cooking certified? Because you sell to the public, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it was a long process to go. Um, the, the town market asked me to do a, get, get a permit of some sort. So I went to the state, and the state said they were going to work on a permit where we can get certified that are baking out of the Orno. And so it took them approximately about 10 years to get it. And then once they got it, then um, they told me about it. So now I, I go every, every month to get a, a permit to do that. So I'm the first Native American to get this certification. So it's something that I'm, I'm proud of because I helped push it to get it through because now everywhere you go they ask for these permits a food permit or whatever you have you're selling so um now i get to sell anywhere in the state of new mexico mm -hmm. yeah, and, and before that um if anybody was uh making bread or cookies or pastries or anything out of an orno they they didn't have any kind of permit to show for it right and sometimes they got maybe turned away is yeah. that is that what mm -hmm. happened oh yeah uh, that's a you know, they, that's the main thing they ask you in most places where you go. And then at our village where, where we can sell, we all we have to have is this, uh, it's a it's an eight northern food permit. And that's what we, we apply for. And as long as you have that permit, you can sell at the Pueblo. But you don't have to worry about the state one. And um, it's a little bit lenient at the Pueblo than in the state. In the next booth, I met with Janelle Lujan. She's a farm assistant at the Red Willow Farm. So what are you doing now? You're working on some corn husks? I'm making a corn husk doll. I learned how to make them in Oneida 
uh, reservation. Yeah, they took us out for a conference, a food summit conference, and they taught us, the people out there taught us how to make these corn husk dolls. And, and I've been making them ever since. It's kind of addicting. <laughs> and uh, so, so you're a farm assistant at uh, Red Willow Farm. Can you tell me uh, maybe what you do there? Um, I actually open the farm and I uh, start watering the plants and what uh, feeding chickens doing weeding and um just basic farm farm stuff that you do but i have a project that i do there i have tomatoes and um i string them up there and i've been stringing them up since i've been working there since july yeah what, what does it mean to string up uh, tomatoes they, they were hanging all over just flopping all over so i started to to string them with a string to support them and they've been doing really good now yeah um, so what, what are what are have you always been working on a farm or working with food and growing your own food uh, no I've never worked on a farm I never grown my own food um, I always used to work at McDonald's I was there for four years I was a manager there and um, my sister Cheryl Romero told me about uh, Red Willow Farm and um, I transferred my my profession, and I've I've been there since July, and I I love it, yeah. Um, and what what are maybe some of the more valuable lessons I guess that you learned uh, growing growing your own food at the farm? Um, the valuable lesson is that we need to learn how to grow our food because we won't have grocery stores forever. And if we know how to grow our own food, we'll never grow hungry. And I have an 11-year-old daughter that I'm trying to teach how to take care of herself and how to um, respect the land and become a water protector like me. Just trying to protect our water. Yeah. And it's pretty delicious. We um, I, like it's water and how it tastes is something that I always pay attention to traveling and going to different areas. And this water is really really sweet, really, yeah, really fresh. My grandmother always told us that um, she could never have enough of it. She would take one drink and then it would just never be enough. She could never have enough of it. Yeah. All right, so tell me, is this uh, some of your art here? Yeah, I've been painting for 15 years now. And uh, my uncle Mike Marcus, um, he showed me how to paint. And um, I've always painted like him, a silhouette style with the vibrant background and um they just they're just pictures of taos pueblo and how i feel and you know images what i've seen in the mountains yeah um so you're taos pueblo you're from here yeah i'm taos pueblo this might be something just extra and different on the side, but I was watching a video on Facebook. It was about the Taos hum. Do you know about that? What is that? Um, I really don't know much about it, but I heard about it, and some say it. I really don't know. I really I want to know more about it. Yeah, I. They say that uh, the locals really don't hear it. Maybe because we're here all the time. But people that aren't from here, they, they say they hear something. It might be in the mountain. It might be like a, you know, something in the mountain. I don't know. Who knows? 
It, it was um, a video by um, a, a podcast or a, or a show, and they were linking it to maybe the paranormal, maybe like, you know, secret war weapons or something like that. But I was just really curious. I saw it this morning. I'm like, hey, we're in Taos. Maybe yeah. maybe I'll catch it on my microphone here. Yeah, maybe it might be happen to do with the gorge. There's like a big old divide in there as well. It might happen to do with that as well, the wind. I don't know. It would be great to find out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, you have um, you have the chefs here. There was food last night. There's food all around today. Uh, there's a dinner tonight. Um, what What are you thinking about when you're tasting all of these different foods? I'm thinking wow and the possibilities of what could happen here in Taos Pueblo and how we could just so totally eat all this food just like this and it just opens so many windows to you know opportunities for our kids. By the way you can see photos from these Taos food events on the Toasted Sister website which is toastedsisterpodcast.com or on the Facebook page. So uh, also part of this event was a food tasting where four chefs prepared a variety of dishes. Here's a rundown of what they were serving. Uh, Carlos Baca, who you heard from in episode one, was there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm doing two dishes today. Uh, one is a gete kosumin squash with the red chili wild plum sauce. Uh, popped ri- wild rice from Red Lake, Minnesota. Uh, black huckleberry that's from uh, Narragansett, Rhode Island. And on the other dish, we have uh, an exploration of the prickly pear. So we have a prickly pear meal made out of the prickly pear seeds. We have a dehydrated, a fresh, a syrup, and we're going to top that with a popped amaranth. Uh, what do you hope uh, people take away from tasting these two dishes here? <laughs> Uh, the the depth of indigenous flavor, you know. Um, I think that in the mainstream food world, you have to look at that Navajo taco kind of scenario, and it's just not, there's no layers to it. It's just a repetitive thing, you know, and when in reality we have such, such depth of flavor and seasonings that we've traditionally used, that it's just, it's good to showcase and let people know that this is a, a cuisine that needs to be reckoned with yeah <laughs> also brian yazi was there he's part of the sous chef crew from minneapolis uh, he also works on his own and goes by yazi the chef you might have heard from him before in episode seven the dish i have today is um all locally grown and harvest um, ingredients so i have a juniper berry and wild herb um, braised bison with a um, sweet corn and acorn squash roasted with wild mint that we just foraged this morning. With a um, blue corn and green chili sauce and a burnt corn ash on top. Can you tell me about the burnt corn? Is there maybe a story behind that? Yeah, with um, various tribes in the southwest, they use it more as like a um, feed dehydrate and um, bring um, juniper um, berries to an ash. You can use it as a black pepper taste. So the same thing with the black um, corn. You know, just when you blacken it, the sweet corn. So it'll come out like a um, black pepper taste. And we're keeping it um, simple. We're not overdoing it with the flavor. So we're just having them have their original um, tasting. <laughs> 
uh, putting this dish together, um, was there kind of any kind of inspiration or just local? Well, for me, I when I travel, you know, I focus on a certain area, um, the regional areas, and for here, I use all the ingredients that are based out of um, this region. So. Kimberly Marcus was there. She's a personal chef, and she's Taos Pueblo. Um, I was, it was my take, inspired by the native chefs that were here. Um, I was inspired to, I specialize in Italian and Japanese, so I wanted to put my take on it with the natural food, so I decided to make a uh, roasted pumpkin squash um, blue corn ravioli. And um, what, what kind of uh, reviews or what kinds of uh, uh, things were people saying about? Um, mostly um, the intriguing part was the blue corn, just because there wasn't any gluten in it. Um, it is known to fall apart, so I didn't use um, any water by blanching it or anything. It was basically fried in a pan uh, with fresh garlic, and it was all provided by uh, Red Willow Farms. And last but not least, Chef Ray Nerano was serving up small samples of corn. He's a personal chef from the uh, Pueblo Food Experience, which is a traditional foods project. Oh, so today uh, I'm presenting the story of corn from the Pueblo perspective, uh, table perspective. Okay, so uh, the first thing we have is a blue corn uh, that's representative of the north. That's paired with maple syrup. Um, the next item we have is white corn, that's from the east, and that's paired with sweet grass. Uh, to the south, we have red corn, that's paired with anchiote flowers and uh, agave nectar. And to the west, we have yellow corn, and that's paired with uh, California sage. Who are you, and how did you start uh, cooking? I started cooking ind indigenous food uh, recently. Uh, I was inspired by... Uh, the project um, that, that started the book, The Pueblo Food Experience, um, and that took place in Santa Clara Pueblo, where um, several of uh, a group of us got together and uh, did indigenous foods only for three months. And uh, we started uh, with a blood test, and the whole goal was to, uh, to track the health benefits of eating an indigenous diet only. Um, so after three months, we went for a second blood test uh, to show the results of, of how this food um, changed our health. Uh, absolutely. There was people that were borderline diabetics. There was people that had uh, high blood pressures and different um, health problems. And uh, you could see the, uh, the decline of the, uh, of, of the effects that the diet had on their health. Ray mentions blood tests and the Pueblo food experience. Well, later that day at the big fancy fundraiser dinner, which included five dishes from the chef you just heard from, Roxanne Swinsel gave a presentation. Uh, Roxanne uh, started the Pueblo food experience, and she's one of the authors of the cookbook, which is also called the Pueblo food experience. Uh, she explains how the food project started. Um, meantime, I was looking around my community and I was noticing all of the health problems that was going on in our community. From diabetes to alcohol, drug addictions, depression, obesity, um, uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, you name it. We, we were falling apart as a community. My son is a historian, and we are looking at old photographs of Santa Clara. <laughs> when you look at 
us when the pic pictures have people in them and you see the old pictures and you go, wow, we looked really nice back then. The further you look, and then you kind of like wander around. And it, we slowly started to become wider and wider and unhappier and slower. And, um, and we're like, what happened to us? And we realized that the thing that happened to us was our lifestyle changed. And one of the major lifestyle changes was what we ate. Meantime, my son was over close to 300 pounds at the time. And he had gone to the doctors. Here he, had, here he was, you know, 28 years old at that time. And the doctor was saying, you're going to have a heart attack any day. His son was at six years old. My grandson was diagnosed with prediabetes at six years old. And it broke my heart. I just thought, I, bit, I got to do something here. This isn't right. Um, so meantime, <laughs> I'm still looking, studying my seeds and stuff. And I read this scientific article one day. And it said that it takes 20 generations of any species, insect, plant, human, any species, living in one location to adapt to that environment. This rang deep inside me as an amazing thing to think about because as a seed saver, I knew this was true because as I watched my crops, um, be so adapted to that light in my in, in this area, that soil, that amount of water, that all of that which makes my place what it is, those plants were adapting to that. You if I got some seed from Iowa farmers to try to plant it in my garden, it would just come up and think it was in hell and just shrivel up and die. It, it was like, where's the water? Where's the this and that? So it's very location-oriented. This was really important to me um, in thinking about place and food and health and culture and who we are. Um, so my son and me, we talked about um, how interesting it is when things match up right. When I put the right seed in the right environment, it does very well. And I thought of us as seeds and what happens to us when we're put in the right environment. We're healthy, we grow well, we're happy, we, we, we do all our health improves immediately. So we decided to try it out with food and we thought, I wonder if we could eat the way our ancestors did before the Europeans came in today's time. We didn't know if we could. This was, we, we didn't even know exactly what those foods were. <laughs> we could say, oh, my bread, chili, you know, it's like we had to really think back on what was those foods before contact with Europeans. Um, so we started researching this. And there's some of it that, you know, we were handed down. We still were corn people. We still like our beans and our squash, but that wasn't all there was. So we started to research what this was. 
Meantime, um, <laughs> meantime we decided, um, I wonder if we could test ourselves. Actually test, like the seeds, if this would improve our health. So we rounded up 14 volunteers from the Pueblo, ages 6 to 65, and uh, we all decided we would experiment on ourselves as guinea pigs and go to the doctors, get prodded, poked, blood tests done. We were a mess. <laughs> you name it, we had it. And um, we held hands, and as a community group, we decided to try to eat our original foods. This was quite an adventure because we all took home a bag of beans and a piece of <laughs> uh, buffalo meat and some uh, squash. And I went home and I thought, oh my God, we're going to starve. <laughs> we decided we would try this for three months. If we could do this for three months and see what happened to our bodies, hey, you know, what's to lose? So we learned a lot really fast. Um, and we learned how to be creative in what we were eating. And, and tonight's dishes reminds me of like, wow, what happens with our creativity when you're given three ingredients to eat? And what can you do with those three ingredients? Um, but of course, we were learning more and more what different ingredients we could use. Um, <laughs> As we were journeying through this and having lots of potlucks together so that we could um, keep each other on the diet and keep each other connected and share what we would find, uh, we were learning tremendous things, tremendous things. By three months, we all went back to the doctors. We got poked and prodded and weighed again we blew the doctors away. They had no idea that this would work as well as it did. Things they told many of us that couldn't be fixed, they had given, we were, many of us were on medications, many of us were on antidepressants, all kinds of different things. They say, well, we can't help you, you just have to take these pills the rest of your life or whatever. It was gone. Gone, gone, gone. <laughs> Thank you. So we have proven without a doubt that our diet, our pre-contact diet, fit our genetic makeup. That's how I see it. That was my Taos Indigenous Food Experience. Before I go, I'd like to say thank you to the awesome people at the Red Willow Farm and to Addie Lucero, the Executive Director, for inviting me to be part of the experience. And it was a great event, and I saw it firsthand how everyone worked so hard to put it together. They're already planning to do another one next year, so keep an eye out for that.